Welcome to Principium. I'm Ryan. I'm Ilana. And I'm Andrea. In this podcast, we're capturing the voices and the spirit of our generation, who we are and what we care about. We're searching for the origins of our problems that we face right now in hopes to make a brighter future. If you have less than $10,000 in your bank account and you want more money, I have a message for you. Stop being poor. You're only poor because you're lazy, and if you were to work harder, you could get yourself out of poverty. So just get a job. I'm, I'm kidding, of course, but only somewhat, because even though that short-sighted take sounds so obviously goofy, that's a pretty dominant narrative in America. You've probably heard of the American dream, where you can do anything in the U.S. of A. if you just work hard enough and you don't give up. But that's just not the case, because that view is ignoring all of the other factors that prohibit upward social mobility. Uh, what do you mean by social mobility? Well, I mean the way that we're able to move up and down on the social ladder, like leaving the working class to join the elites or slipping from student status to just plain impoverished. It depends on who you are, how you look, and how you identify, though. The more non-conforming you are, whether in your actions or your ethnicity, the more likely you are to sit at the bottom of the ladder. And just to preface future convos, this also tends to mean being spied on, imprisoned, or killed. But I mean, on the other side of the coin, rich people are richer than ever. I mean, uh, ha have you guys seen that video touring the world's largest house? I have not, but how large are we talking? Are you you're talking about the mega mansion in Los Angeles that's like over 100,000 square feet or something? Yeah, what? Yeah, in Bel Air. It came onto the market at like half a billion dollars, but no one has bought it yet. Surprise, surprise. So the asking price has been dropping. Yeah, it's coming onto the market at an awful time, at least as far as entertainers go. A lot of LA people are going to Texas. Yeah, the guy borrowed like $80 million and started construction in 2012, and nine years later, he's trying to sell the home and pay back the loan that's now over $100 million in the middle of this LA pandemic exodus. He talks about sustainability in the most laughable way. <laughs> he's a real airhead. The way he talks about using fake flowers in arrangements as a way to be more sustainable, like... Sir, this house has seven pools and a nightclub. You did not win me over with the fake plants. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and, and, and the way that he's, he's saying that he wants to make the world a, a better place through this house, it's, it's very arrogantly American. Very. <laughs> like, you think this guy has a grasp about what's going on in Syria or, like, the humanitarian crises in Yemen? Like, it's a mega mansion, that's all. It's just a big house in a kind of disgusting and overpopulated American city. It's... It's one big product carefully made of a bunch of other products. D does that seem right to you? Like, how come there's a half billion dollar house in a city that's dr drowning in pollution, coated in feces of homeless people? Like, why is there poverty in a first world nation like the U.S.? A really simple answer here that just sounds like capitalism. You know, unequal distribution of resources and power, you know, a lack of material and even immaterial resources, too, for the people who need them most. It sounds like government's not caring for its own citizens, and that's forcing citizens into a position where they can't care for each other or even themselves. It, it sounds like our economic and our social and our political systems just are not working properly. Um, because at this point, the upward social mobility thing doesn't even really matter as much as the fact that young people don't really have anywhere to go. Even if our ecological future was guaranteed, which it's not, we're facing this hyper-capitalism economy that's so stacked against us. In what ways? Uh, well, I mean, housing. Uh, the rent prices are, are ridiculous, like, especially in any city. And I mean, don't even mention home buying to a young person. I don't, I don't think any of us know how we do that. Health. Medical care is bankrupting people, and even then, the most reliable health insurance is probably through an employer, and so people end up trapped inside these 30-year-long careers doing these like repetitive, minimal-skill jobs because that's the only way that they can get health care. Um, in education, I mean, the, the concept of a degree has become s such an elitist and competitive thing. It's, it's, at this point, it's just a fancy receipt for your tuition. And speaking of tuition, college tuition has doubled since the 1980s, 
And that's adjusted for inflation. That, that's not to say that, oh, yeah, things are more expensive now. Like purchasing power hasn't gone anywhere. That's kind of what's so significant about this. Purchasing power hasn't gone anywhere in the last 40 or 50 years, but everything's so much more expensive. So it's it's like, how did we get this way? How do, how do we become you know, so ingrained in the economy being our life? And well, Alana, you're on the right track with capitalism as your answer and that's definitely part of it, but what we're talking about is different. It's more extreme than capitalism. So there's this thing called neoliberalism, and and it's hard to define, but you know we have the rest of this podcast episode to talk about it, so I, I think we're going to be fine. A person who follows neoliberal ideas probably wouldn't call themselves a neoliberal because neoliberalism in writing and in practice are two different things. The founders of neoliberalism, uh, which we'll talk about, would probably call themselves neoliberals, um, amongst other things. But but today the word is used a lot more by critics to define this cultural movement that started in the 70s and 80s that kind of expanded the economy to all walks of life. Quit beating around the bush. What is neoliberalism? It, you're right. It's it, it's just that it's it's so hard to like explain Okay, then give us the simplified version then, like if you were explaining it to a high schooler. Okay, a a simplified definition. Okay, uh, neoliberalism is an ideology that suggests that the primary bond between humans is economic. It's not social, cultural, political, familial, anything like that. Essentially, a neoliberal platform would believe that humans are driven solely by self-interest, and motivated in their interaction with people and institutions by what they stand to gain. Well, it sounds like we're living under a neoliberal regime. It's nice to have a label to put on something that you're so mad about. I agree. Every time that I'm upset with how the world works, I I try to analyze it and look for root causes. And I always come back to this one problem, capitalism. But I, I, I know it's not that black and white, I, and I don't want to pretend that there aren't positives to capitalism, but capitalism is an economic framework, and unfortunately, we've witnessed that agenda seeping into the social realm. And so it turns out what I'm actually way more mad about, and I've just been calling capitalism, is actually neoliberal capitalism. That's what's responsible for making every single thing in the entire world about money. And what's even more frustrating is that neoliberalism is full of ideas that contradict themselves. But I don't want to get hung up on what the name is here. The goal is not to define, it's to analyze. So here's Wendy Brown, a political theorist at UC Berkeley and one of the leading authors on the subject. She can explain a lot better than I can. It's like asking if the Holy Roman Empire was really Roman. Exactly. Well, it said it was. Right. (laughs) It's right there in the name. So I don't care. I'm not interested. I don't have a dog in that fight about what we do and don't call neoliberalism. What I'm interested in is exposing the difference between the idea that all that happened in the 70s is we put capitalism on steroids. We just kind of amped it up and unleashed it and deregulated it and privatized a lot of public goods versus a new order of reason in which the state exists in order to facilitate markets and backs off from all forms of, of social justice intervention. But so also, to... just one mm-hmm. last thing, I, I, I think it's really important to, to see that we all start thinking of ourselves as little bits of human capital. And um, contrary to you know Noah's strong support of unions, uh, unions themselves are, are busted and assaulted because they're understood as interfering in, in competitive markets. And instead, every individual is supposed to just think of themselves as a little private entrepreneur of themselves, not a laborer, not, not part of a, 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 an organized class. You know, Brown had some really impressive thoughts here, but it, they're also really, really terrifying, too. You know, she's describing this world where suddenly everything is justified by market logics and what's good for the market. And what's really surprising about that is that it's not simply confined to the realm of the economics, right? Um, It's extending down into the social, it's touching real people with real lives. And it's the market is saying that individual lives, they're, they're expendable. It's okay to get rid of them because they're just a piece of human capital. They're just a commodity or something that has potential to create profit, nothing more. And that's, that's so reductionist and so dehumanizing. And maybe that helps justify why the market is able to create these hierarchies, you know, 
where capitalists sit at the top and they live the good life while everybody else suffers. Yeah, and on that note too, Ilana, this idea of neoliberalism, it feels almost inescapable. It doesn't matter your political or personal affiliations because in our society, in our neoliberal society, its ripples are felt everywhere. It's felt in the public sphere, the private sphere, the political. And what she touches on too a lot is this whole concept of individualism. We're always worried about ourselves, which is what you were talking about before, Ryan, and how we survive in this market that we're talking about. Well, let's talk a little bit more about this market. So our economy here in the U.S. and uh, in a lot of places around the world is a free market capitalist economy. So I, I want to do some word associations. Um, so Andrea, you have free market. Alana, you have capitalism. Um, Alana, g- give me some words that come to mind when you think of capitalism. Capitalism. Oh, boy. Okay. Um, obviously, the first logical connection is to capital itself. Assets of value, assets used to create more value. Maybe it's money, maybe it's machinery. Um, The second logical connection, of course, is exploitation. How do you generate that capital? A singular person can't, by herself, generate capital without laborers, right? But if you're paying the laborers the value of their labor, you, the capitalists, are making no profit. So you pay the workers less than what they're owed. So if you want my associated words, amoral, unethical, exploitative, and unfair. And on free market, some words and phrases that automatically come to my mind are minimal regulation, competition, and risk. A free market is a high-risk, high-reward scenario. So when new products and services are entering the market, there is a lot at risk. Not every product survives because they're going up against a lot of equally as aggressive competition. Free markets are intense. Even us consumers aren't out of the loop. All of the effects of production eventually come back around and have an impact on all of us, whether that's environmentally, socially, or economically. And with that said, it feels like we're gambling away our future. We we have limited resources, and economics is all about scarcity. It's all about how do we take these resources and distribute them to make the most number of people happy to, to help them survive, right? So when we're talking about free markets and capitalism, it seems like the only priority is just uh, produce, 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 consume, 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 and profit, profit, profit. Well, and we have to remember, too, that scarcity only applies to the majority of us. If you think back to Mansion Man, he has an abundance of resources, of money, of laborers. Not everyone else has that. Yeah, so free market and capitalism are very related, um, but they they aren't the same. And it's, it's definitely worth noting what their exact meaning is. Uh, Alana, as you said, capitalism refers to the creation of wealth and the ownership of capital, production, and, and distribution. Um, and then Andrea, dead on with the free market, it's, it's the distribution of goods and services with limited or no government intervention. So the U.S. and a lot of other first world countries, they use this as their economic system because the idea is that it's going to provide innovative market solutions and that the competition in the marketplace is going to enable this consumer and company accountability and like this fair pricing. And, you know, the, the idea is that people are going to be motivated by wanting more money and they will, they will work harder. They will uh, find solutions. Um, But, you know, as we've seen, as the, words that you guys use to describe, you know, free market and capitalism, we have to notice that on paper and in practice, capitalism is not the same thing. We're, we're seeing hyper-exploitation with no regulations. And so wh- where does neoliberalism come into play? Essentially, neoliberalism extends the free market to all aspects of daily life. It's It's like the philosophy of treating normal everyday life like a market. It's it's kind of treating citizens like consumers and it looks at competition as a norm in relationships. In the most basic terms, think of neoliberalism as like economization or marketization mixed with, you know, this kind of capitalism on steroids mixed with this individualist propaganda. 
kind of. We'll 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 go into that a little bit more. We're we're starting to pick up on all of these contradictions, right? And uh, I think that's what we get for putting economics at the center of life for economizing the human. Right. What what I'm getting at here, and I, I think what the argument that we're trying to shape ultimately is that there are just some areas where we don't need to look at life like like a market. There are lots of areas where that's just not beneficial to people. Are you guys familiar with the term homo economicus? Nope. Me neither. So this is something that I ran into in a lot of my research. At the core, it's economizing the human. It's looking at man as an infinitely rational being that will make these choices that influence the market in a way that the whole wants. But when we dig into that and look a little bit more, that's humans are not infinitely rational. Humans make a lot of really weird choices, a lot of random stuff. Uh, you know, it's it's just it's not the case that humans are infinitely rational and that we can make the best decisions in in every circumstance and guide life and guide the market as it as it should be. Right, and and it doesn't really make sense to premise our entire worldview on this one image of the human that that like you're saying it's not even correct so we're making this false assumption and it's leading to all sorts of catastrophic outcomes let's go back in time so that we can understand neoliberalism's history a little bit better so first we need to look at liberalism um, liberalism has taken on many forms and many definitions um, based on the location and the time period um, but on a kind of oversimplified level, liberalism is the idea that governments should protect civil liberties. Classical liberalism, like 18th and 19th century classical liberalism, David Ricardo, James Mills, Adam Smith, like that kind of liberalism, the idea behind that is to promote economic liberty. You know, think uh, laissez-faire economics, give people the ability to spend and save their money as they see fit. And as time has gone on, the definition of liberalism has kind of shifted, and some people apply it more to securing individual liberties that aren't financial. But neoliberalism's founders drew inspiration from classic liberalism, not any modern interpretation of it. So the, the two cornerstones of liberalism are these two Western ideals, individuality and adversariality. So individuality, uh, what I mean by that is the sense of mattering as an individual outside of the group. And adversariality, that is basically saying that a dynamic social order is generated through institutionalized competition. So like political parties, a prosecution versus a defense, competitors in a market. Those two ideas are what found liberalism. But where neoliberalism branches off from that is it's in the understanding of competition in, in markets. In 1947, a group of economists gathered in Montpellerin, Switzerland, to form the Montpellerin Society. Some of these folks include Friedrich Hayek and Milton Friedman, and essentially they aim to defend liberalism from the tyranny of fascism and communism. These neoliberal thinkers say that markets don't exist on their own, and that the state is responsible for constructing and organizing these markets. Really, it's using government power to ensure that a capitalist system is in place. You know, in a nutshell, Montpellerin doubled down on capitalism because they believed that the markets were the best way to organize human activity. So that means that the best form of governments to exist would be a government that exists solely to ensure that markets exist so that people consume and lift themselves out of poverty. That's the main argument of capitalism, right? Well... Yeah, but we need to talk about the capitalism has lifted billions out of poverty saying. I absolutely agree. The statistic is technically correct from World Bank, but it's the framing of poverty that is really not showing the whole story. And that's intentional, so it can be used as propaganda. And that misuse and misrepresentation of data is an unfortunate common theme in our discussions. When you say the framing of poverty, do you mean the international poverty line? Yeah, so the, the World Bank did change the amount of income per day required to constitute being above the poverty line in 2015, but you know, it wasn't because they realized that that level was too low and they wanted to get a more accurate representation of how many people were living in poverty. It was just, you know, updated to reflect the purchasing power of the dollar. So 
I mean, take a guess. What do you think the international poverty line is set at today? Essentially, what has the World Bank, this kind of big international group, decided that you have to make every single day in order to be considered not in poverty? Okay, stab in the dark here. I've been reading up on the minimum wage. So a person working 40 hours a week for 50 weeks in a year at um, the U.S., Na- uh, national minimum wage, seven twenty-five an hour. I think that person would make about fourteen, fifteen thousand dollars in a year. Uh, so, it, is that even above the poverty line? I, I would assume that's below, right? Yeah, technically, that is above the poverty line. Really? Yeah, and let's 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 think about that. That breakdown gives you, you know, a thousand two hundred fifty bucks per month. About you know, if we're looking at fifteen thousand dollars a year. Divide that on rent, car insurance, uh, you know, your health insurance, if your work hasn't trapped you in, groceries, personal debts that you might have, and leisure activities. Yes, that's right. Poor people deserve leisure too. And you're not left with a lot of money, right? Get this. That's still well above the international poverty line. You guys ready? The international poverty line in 2015 was changed from $1.25 per day to $1.90 per day. Oh my God. Wow. Yeah, when people say capitalism is responsible for lifting a billion people out of poverty, they're defining poverty as making less than $700 a year. Really? Someone making $1.50 per day is poor, but someone who makes $2 a day has been lifted from poverty by capitalism? Like, the statistic is accurate, but the definition of poverty is just wrong. And unfortunately, that's exactly the point. Neoliberalism does not address any social justice issues. And fact, it purposely wants the government to stay out of that territory. The neoliberals wanted tradition and morality to guide American society. The idea is that the state is not responsible for social justice and should not have policy to, quote-unquote, increase equality, as that would actually be less equal to others. I mean, we have a free market, after all. Anyone can enter it and become successful. And it's important to keep in mind that these ideas were being developed in the interwar and postwar periods where the New Deal in the U.S. had created this Keynesian welfare state. Remind me what Keynesianism is again. Okay, I got this. So Keynes' law says that demand creates its own supply, right? Producers will only produce if they know that there's a demand. Therefore, if you help the household, the consumers, the people that actually do the demanding, then you can generate economic growth. So Keynesian economics advocates for the welfare state. By supporting consumers, you enable them to generate enough disposable income to be able to spend in the economy, which ultimately ends up benefiting the producers as well. So by protecting the consumer through government intervention by, for example, keeping prices low or protecting the laborer, who's also a consumer, by implementing price floors, you ultimately are helping the producers. Yeah, Keynesian economics relies on the idea that the government plays a role in mitigating economic recession. It's important to keep in mind that capitalism tends to have these moments of more unemployment, these moments of depression and recession. And so Keynesian economics aims to provide stability to to the market. Um, But apparently, Keynesianism was just too socialist for America by the 50s and 60s. And, you know, citizens were becoming increasingly afraid of big government taking over and becoming communist, even though a lot of anti-communist propaganda was coming from the government. Um, So obviously, the free market is not only the only way to go, but we have to double down and make the government's exclusive role to create markets and stay out of every other walk of life. Okay, so I have eight assumptions here eight understandings that we have based our support of capitalism and neoliberalism and the free market in. And I want you guys to see if you can find false assumptions, fallacies, deficiencies, contradictions in these arguments for a free market capitalist neoliberal world. First, a free market provides solutions to humanity's problems. So the understanding is that competition and the quest for profit will drive people to find solutions to profit from. You know, people will become innovative because they're essentially self-interested. What what do you guys think? I think the general underlying sentiment of that statement is that people are only motivated by money. 
And I think that's just that that's a false assumption. Obviously, when there's a need, we'll find a way to create something. It's not as if like we we have a problem and we're not going to solve it because we're not getting paid. Right. So like people can innovate or create out of need. Then, of course, there's also personal fulfillment, right? I might have a desire to go learn about something or or to paint an art scene on a canvas or whatever. I'm not being compensated for those activities, right? It, it, it's a personal drive. It's an internal thing. So the general underlying sentiment of that statement just doesn't seem to fit with how I would personally view humanity and, and what drives us. Well, that's homo economist again. It's putting a dollar value on very human traits, on our emotions, on our needs, on like you were mentioning, on our creativity. Good points. All right, let's move on to number two. Regulating the market is restrictive to growth and should be avoided. So the idea is by making companies pay more than they already have to, that will move the cost on onto the consumer and demand decreases and the economy recesses. And so it's actually market regulation that is holding the economy back and that's what's holding people back from profiting. Okay, well, from a purely theoretical standpoint, that's one perspective, that's supply-side economics. But we also talked about Keynesianism and demand-side economics, which is Mm -hmm. the opposite idea. It's that you need the government to protect the consumer and that ultimately ends up benefiting the producer, right? So those are two differing perspectives. Well, Keynesianism is also what helped bring us out of our last recession to government involvement and helping revive these corporations and businesses Mm -hmm. after that economic crash was what helped sustain the economy. And comparatively, Reagan's supply-side economics trickle-down policy put us in a recession. So, I mean, you do the math. (laughs) I will do the math. Um, number three, the third assumption is that limiting competition is limiting freedom. So monopolies exploit the people so a competitor can keep a company in check. Well, monopolies kind of exist naturally, right? They, they occur naturally. So it doesn't really make sense to rely on other competitors to keep each other in check, right? The best apparatus to do that would be like a government, an external, uh, an external party to regulate what's going on. Right. And and there's also no way to guarantee that a an entire industry is going to regulate itself. E- even if there's competition amongst, you know, two housing lenders, they can still, you know, they're, they're able to gouge people just because the market allows for that. All right. So number four is that taxes should be minimized. The The concept here is that the more money that people have, the more that they will spend and circulate in the economy. Well, how do we expect the government to get anything done if there's no tax dollars being flowed to them? That money circle circulates back to the people itself. There, there isn't really a lot of solid proof that says that people with more money are going to spend it and circulate that money. In fact, what we've seen is just money hoarding. I mean, when it comes to the top 10%, it, it's it's ridiculous how much a very small elite class of people just own the world. And just from a general perspective, too, I mean, taxes are literally the government's income. That's how we get our roads fixed. That's how we pay for public education, uh, uh, things like that. Uh, we need we need taxes so that the government can perform public services. Ah, but we haven't got to the fifth assumption yet, that public services are better privatized. So the idea behind this is that multiple competing companies will create accountability and lower prices. That's good for the consumer. Okay, this is literally the easiest rebuttal in the world, and we'll talk about this extensively uh, later on. But healthcare. Healthcare is... In in the U.S., it's a mess. It's a bunch of different private companies selling healthcare as a branded commodity. And we could look into the statistics. I I don't know how many people a year in the U.S. go bankrupt because healthcare is too damn expensive, right? Uh, When really it should be something provided by the government as a right, as as a basic service to the people. That way the government can do uh, price control, make sure it's available to all people. And that even that just simplifies the whole process. And, and like I said, we'll get into it later. But 
public services are they're necessary and they are there for a reason and privatizing everything it, it is just going to cause problems and we're subjecting a lot of our basic needs to the fate of companies and business decisions which last i checked i thought the government was supposed to be taking care of us <laughs> not anymore yeah not anymore let's let's just be taken care of by the richest people in society instead in fact that's kind of what assumption six is is based off of um you mentioned trickle down economics earlier and that's exactly what this is money will trickle down from the richest people through the working class and the lower class and close economic disparity gaps so essentially if billionaires have plenty of billions they'll be willing to spread that money and stimulate the economy through through enterprising through starting companies and and employing people. Well, last I checked, the economic gap is widening. If anything, I wouldn't say it's going the other way. Yeah, I mean, yeah, I don't have anything to say. Just like random input. I no, that's, just... that's 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 one hundred percent correct. I mean, it's it's like literally like a seven second rebuttal. Just like no, actually, trickle down economics didn't work. If the assumption is people can stimulate the economy through enterprising well where are we going to get the means of doing that if everyone's going to be an entrepreneur everyone needs the money to become an entrepreneur and start a business and not frankly not everyone has those resources but even if everyone doesn't have those resources the next assumption is that social justice is not the responsibility of the government so kind of the, the idea behind this one is that everyone has an equal opportunity an equal chance to enter the free market and profit and so it just turns out to be that those who are profiting are the smartest and the hardworking, while those who end up broke or in debt are just lazy and unenterprising. So really any effort by the government to increase equality is actually ethically wrong and it's less fair. Well, we know that doesn't exactly work because we can acknowledge that racial, racial bias is a thing, um, bias based on sexual orientation or your gender is a thing. So it's really not as equal as they're making it out to be. We need the government to help us with our social, social justice problems. I mean, laws that are granting equal voting rights are what we're helping us move in the right direction in terms of social justice movements. Right. When I was doing my research on what the neoliberal platform entails, I was honestly pretty shocked to find out that they say that social justice isn't the job of the government. I I guess I just thought that that was kind of one of the big components of governance, like one of the reasons to have a justice system. The neoliberal argument, though, it goes beyond just saying that social justice isn't the responsibility of the government. They go so far as to say that social justice efforts imposed by the government are pretty much authoritarian. They're anti-democratic because it's it's prioritizing, supposedly prioritizing certain citizens over other citizens. They say that it's imposing the will of a certain like representative government on the will of all of the citizens. They say that's unfair. And and that's that's something that Wendy Brown talks a lot about too. Um the lengths that neoliberal thought goes to in order to justify why market logics are the best, why they are the only option, because markets preserve the natural order of things. Well, you're getting at the the last assumption, the, the market-oriented worldview. The assumption behind this one is that markets are the best way to organize society and to organize humans. Therefore, it is the role of the government to create and organize these markets and then step out and not interfere. Wrong. <laughs> you know, the, the thing I hate the most about neoliberalism is that it's, you're right, it, it's so, so wrong and so perverted and it, it's dumb, but it also makes sense in its own twisted, markety way. Like, the reasoning and, and the way that it's presented and the way that all of these ideas about markets and, and the government and money, the, the way that they're all piled together and sequenced, it does it makes logical sense in a vacuum, which I really hate. I wish I could say that like it's dumb, it makes no sense, it, it doesn't work, but mm -hmm. in a vacuum it would work, right? Yeah, exactly. So I mean I, I can't really argue against this like logistically. I just have my gut feeling that says no, that's 
bad. It's wrong. It's not good for people. Uh, yeah, there's there's a lot of stuff that that looks great in a vacuum, but just isn't in in practice. And, and that's exactly what we're going to get into right now. What neoliberalism look like in practice? And you're you're touching on such a such a good point about the way that neoliberalism was kind of sold and marketed to people. It, it was framed in a way that said, you know, government taxing and spending is is theft. It's infringing on individual liberties, even if it's to ensure economic stability, social justice, environmental sustainability, you know, leave those parts out. Just say that, you know, it's it's taking more money from you. It's just consolidating power in the government. Um, by framing government regulation as an overextension of power, as this like communist ideal in this super anti-communist country, ne neoliberal ideas were able to be sold to the general public on the idea that it is going to give you more freedom. And something that's just so ironic about it is that no one ever really had a choice. You know, much like communism, neoliberalism looks good enough on paper to some people, but when it's all said and done, neoliberalism in practice looks entirely different. It creates big economic disparity and even bigger environmental issues. Starting in the 60s, the US economy started turning down from what was previously a pretty good point. Ronald Reagan and his economic council, which consisted of quite a few members of the Mont Pelerin Society, faced a number of crises, most notably when it comes to the economy is stagflation and the OPEC crisis. People demanded that these issues be addressed, and the popular economic idea that was lying around at the time, especially amongst conservatives, was neoliberalism. Neoliberalism isn't just a US thing, though. Of course, the king of the neoliberal ball has a queen, too. Ronald Reagan is mostly responsible for the implementation of neoliberal ideas in the U.S., but across the pond, Margaret Thatcher is neoliberalism's poster child. She's the prime minister of the U.K. from uh, 1979 to 1990, in case you didn't know. Both of them enacted policies to dismantle the welfare state, privatize public services, deregulate industry, and reduce or eliminate progressive taxes that redistribute wealth from the rich. These policies set the stage for an economization that changed the way that we think about ourselves and the world. Neoliberalism transformed from a policy agenda to a governing rationality, kind of like capitalism has gone from an economic system to an ideology. Economization on the individual level turns us into a piece of human capital who is in charge of ourselves and can enhance our own value. But, I mean, think about it. That goes hand in hand with the strong American individualism that we witness today. So we can kind of trace that individualism back to here. People are individuals looking to get ahead rather than part of a society that wishes to improve itself. How do we end up like that? You know, the, the goal of neoliberalism was to responsibilize citizens so that they would ask for nothing in return from their government. Never ask for a handout, you're going to have to work for it. This conveniently serves affluent white people who just so happen to be the politicians and industry leaders. So when you think about neoliberalism in actuality, you'll see that Americans were sold on this illusion of freedom but really, it just removed government responsibility. I mean, especially social responsibility. Just like Wendy Brown said earlier, what really happened in the 70s is not that we just ramped up capitalism. We started thinking about ourselves differently. We started thinking about the role of government differently. And to the point where now it's like we feel like the government isn't responsible for taking you know, care of us, taking, um, taking steps to ensure our well-being. So Wendy Brown also talks a lot about the ideas of Michel Foucault and this concept of biopower, which is the idea that the purpose of the state and and it and the extent of its power is essentially to make citizens live. There are so many random chance events happening, you know, like this pandemic that we're in right now that threaten the health of the population in general. Now, Foucault notes that back in the 17th century states begin to protect citizens against these threats. And with this change, he argues that politics essentially becomes about preserving life, uh, in his terms, making live. Um, but however, there's this major contradiction here because 
Though the state has adopted this new guardian role over the population, Foucault notes that it's still exposing its citizens to death. So if the stated goal of a government is to preserve the lives of its citizens, how can it still expose them to death by, for example, sending them to war or failing to take adequate action to protect all citizens against the threat of COVID-19? So these Foucauldian principles essentially are politicizing the household, bringing the central of the, the, the central question of politics to the household, to the individuals, um, making individuals and their lives the center of politics. And then neoliberalism comes along, and what it essentially does is it economizes the household and the individual. It, it comes in with these market logics that say you can't rely on the government to support you to sustain your life. Exactly. The neoliberalism was marketed as something to protect and ensure individual liberties. But I, I mean, if you're not in the top 10% of earners in the US, neoliberalism straight up doesn't help you. It's supposed to help the free market continue expanding and encourage people to find innovative solutions. But we're, what we're actually seeing is just lots of exploitation of it. Where we're actually seeing is is deregulation leading to so much environmental destruction and no one is able to hold anyone accountable for it. This is why Wendy Brown says that democracy has been undermined by neoliberalism, because we're giving the power to corporations. We're, we're enabling people to accumulate so much wealth and have more power than the government. We are, through neoliberalism, we are kind of willingly just giving ourselves over to the rich. We are willingly moving towards this kind of autocratic fascist state or maybe oligarchical is is a better word. Now we live in this this corporation nation, this state where massive conglomerates and the most rich people decide how the country runs. And of course this isn't exclusively a US thing. The whole globalized world has either adopted neoliberal policies um, or they've been given neoliberal policies. But the true impact is the fact that people, I mean, really everyone today sees themselves as this individual isolated bit of human capital. And that takes away the capacity to to organize and to collectivize and to... It, it takes away the option for civic participation, democratic participation, for community itself it's yeah you know we can't rely on each other anymore we can't rely on the government to help us it's just the economy that's the only option there's one way to go and that is to the marketplace i think that the georgia boycotts are a pretty good case study i'm so basically people asked georgia-based companies such as coca-cola delta airlines levi strauss and home depot to denounce georgia's new voting legislation because it suppresses votes Specifically, it disproportionately suppresses votes from people of color and low-income earners. Um, Coca-Cola and Delta called it unacceptable. Uh, Levi's called it racist and a step backwards. But Home Depot tried to stay clear politics. They they didn't denounce it. They they didn't want to say anything, and so people chose to boycott them, or or at least tried to enact this boycott on them. I mean, I mean, the the policy doesn't really matter. The the voting suppression legislation doesn't really matter in this example. What I want to look at is how Americans are using boycotts to get political change. Like, What do you guys think about trying to force the hand of, of the company to force the hand of the government? Is, is this exactly what I was saying? Is this we are undermining our ability to involve ourselves in government and so we have to involve ourselves in our, in our economic lives? Or, or, or what is this? Well, it's interesting and perhaps even a little sad that civilians feel that they have to go through these corporations and these big businesses to reverse policies and make an impact in the political sphere in general. It says a lot about how our system works and the value of the citizens itself who are supposed to be supporting and being a major part of this democracy and how low they are on this ladder of importance in terms of political input. Uh, something that I've been thinking about is I think maybe the only real winner is capitalism because we have this kind of notion that this like big economy is good and like, oh, we have the biggest economy 
and our economy is so big and so good and we're growing so much. But I, th- I think if we look at like long-term success, like the loser is humanity. It, it, here's a quote from Peter Joseph's book, The New Human Rights Movement, Reinventing the Economy to End Oppression. Here we go. The market economy is based on cyclical consumption, and it doesn't really matter what is being produced, how it is being produced, or why. If demand or production slows, so too does the movement of money, and when this happens, the economy contracts, systematically reducing the standard of living for many. Economically, this means that capitalism is structurally oblivious to humanity's existence on a finite planet. The system wants to produce, not conserve. In fact, if you think about it, you will discover an interesting paradox to market logic. The fact that capitalism is a scarcity-based economic system that actually seeks infinite consumption. In other words, it favors a threshold of good scarcity to secure competition profits, theorized as a model to properly manage scarcity, optimizing resource use and distribution. Yet, at the same time, the system demands more and more human dissatisfaction and quote-unquote want in order to function and grow. It rewards consumption with no inherent incentive to conserve anything. I thought that was a really good quote that exposes another contradiction, another flaw in this market logic um, that is really hurting us. And, and it's, it's more than us. It's really hurting the environment, which is in turn hurting us. You know, Ryan, you had mentioned how, for you, it seems that the biggest winner is capitalism itself. And the loser is humanity. And that is something that really stands out to me because it's striking me now how, again, how paradoxical or how strange that really is because capitalism is a system. It's not sentient. It it doesn't seem to have a real skin in the game, you know? Whereas humanity, it's composed of real people who do have skin in the game. Their lives are at stake here. So the fact that people are losing and and a, a non-sentient system is winning, that just doesn't sit right with me. And along the lines of what you were talking about with the environment, Ryan, um, I have a great quote from Carlton Brown, who's a commodities trader. He says, until the environmental conditions become a commodity themselves or being traded, then obviously we will not have anything to do with that. It doesn't come into our psyche at all. And I think that really just emphasizes how if it's not of monetary value to us and if we can't profit profit off of it somehow then it's not relevant something that i found really interesting um was the way that china claims that they're in a population crisis and they're not saying that oh we're overpopulated we have so many people they're saying that they're underpopulated and that there are not enough you know laborers to fill the roles that they need to take care of like the retiring generation or to maintain their economy at the state that they're in and not shrink. So you're not looking at population in terms of the environment, which is what you should be looking at population in terms of, and you're looking at it in economic terms. That is a neoliberal pitfall if I've ever seen one. So my takeaway is that neither neoliberalism nor capitalism addresses social justice or ecological sustainability, and it mostly benefits the elite to maintain power structure and increase their capital. What do you guys think? I mean, just to sum up what we've been talking about, I mean, unfortunately, since capitalism has become the way of life, trying to address, you know, social justice issues or environmental issues, they're met in terms of the economy. And... The economy is based around fast quantitative growth instead of qualitative sustainability. You know, we hear people like Trump boasting that America has the biggest economy in the world, you know, like that actually means something positive for humans or or the planet in the long run. Doesn't take into account the overwhelming uh, poverty issue that we have within our own country, which, like we mentioned before, how is that happening? in a first world country like ours. Right. It's it's not actually looking at at welfare. It's not looking at human welfare. It's simply looking at at how big is this certain number that we base some some judgments off of. 
And Trump is determining that we have the biggest economy in the world based on the health of our stock market, mm. which, as we are well aware, is not a, a a good representation for the economic stability of average families, right? No, yeah. not not at all. the 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 stock market is 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 it's actually just one of the parts of of the you know Trump economy that 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 they're boasting about but i mean the stock market is just a casino game that uses human futures at stake i think it's like 85 or 90% owned by the top 10% and and so it's like looking at the stock market as as an indicator it's 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 goofy but so are the other things that we use as indicators like gdp gdp measures final goods and services it doesn't measure the usefulness of those. It doesn't. It doesn't measure why people need those. So buying things for the wrong reason can can boost GDP. Like it, you know, if you have to go out and buy oxygen for your dying relative uh, because you can't be seen in in a hospital, that goes towards GDP. Well, GDP also doesn't take into consideration um, like quality of living and standard of living either. Yeah. Nor does it consider you know illegal market activities or even unpaid uh reproductive labor done in the household you know with with like cooking cleaning child care care for the elderly all of that is absolutely essential to society it's essential to having a good quality of life but that doesn't show up anywhere in the gdp or the gnp or any other supposed indicator of economic health the other economic indicator that we use is unemployment and that is not necessarily a good indicator either because it doesn't account for underemployment. It doesn't account for those outside of the labor force, which um, are those not currently looking for a job. The unemployment rate doesn't address if people are actually able to afford basic needs with that income. What we're getting at, though, is that all of these measures that are supposed to tell us about the health of the economy have no actual translation to the health and quality of life of the people living in that economy. This just gets back to everything we've been saying on uh, about how neoliberalism is trying to uh, combine the economy with um, social life and, and individual people. And these things are just not compatible. The way that we talk about the economy is so detached from any conception of human life and what it means to be alive right now. It's crazy. Yet we've implemented a market into every walk of life. Right. You cannot exist as a human for free. Neoliberalism is all about freedom and choice, apparently, but you don't have a choice whether to participate in it or not. I think this comes down to fear a lot. We live in a world with scarce resources. I, I know that we don't seem to think that because our economic model is based on growth, 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 but that doesn't change that there are limited resources. So in light of the scarce resources that we have, people are willing to become animals again and fight their fellow man and destroy their planet if that means they're going to have a little less fear, a little more peace of mind that they're going to be okay it's just really unfortunate because together we're so much more powerful than we are as, as individuals. And now more than ever, we have the opportunity to connect with people really, really far away, you know, like through the internet, we have these opportunities to form even bigger communities. Right. And I feel like it's just a matter of time before we use these technologies in a way that's either going to kind of free us from the chains of neoliberalism through like these processes of like decentralization and just kind of like giving people very convenient digital power in their hands or technology is going to aid in bringing neoliberalism down as a hammer as like this undefeatable force. So we, I, I feel like we should, we should talk about some of these ways where we are in a digital democracy class and uh, we have not talked about digital quite yet. So if the big neoliberal idea is that the best way to organize society is with markets. How is digital technology either aiding or causing disruption to traditional markets? What markets does it create or destroy? Well, the first thing that comes to mind is Amazon. It's a, a digital platform uh, where you can buy pretty much anything immediately and it gets delivered to your door, right? Mm -hmm. And something that I've noticed is, you know, back to our conversation on monopolies, Amazon is 
taking over a lot of these smaller businesses. It's a more convenient uh, alternative for a lot of consumers. So I think Amazon is almost consolidating power. It's centralizing power. So Amazon has so much potential power. It could be like a leading player in politics if it wanted to. You know, we are maybe not in Amazon, but in like social media companies like uh, like Facebook and Instagram, we are seeing those those companies being political players. Can I add something? Yeah. The ironic part about social media is that it was meant to, you know, expand on our social life to tie us together with big communities of other people who either share or don't share similar interests. But it has also worked to kind of echo that individualist mindset. Now we have these platforms where we can just talk about ourselves, you know, in spite of having interact with all these other people online, we're still just saying me, me, me at the end of the day and how we're going to contribute to social media and how we can look good on social media. And it plays on that part of selling us a lifestyle that we want to live for ourselves. And social media tends to give us this confirmation bias. We're able to surround ourselves with like-minded individuals, and that is going to push us further away from ever accepting another point of view. On a similar note, we have this AI and this big data collection that feeds us information that will support our beliefs already. The way that we get online and Google something is biased and and Google provides those biased results. And then we consume a bunch of information that confirms our bias. And it's one of the contributing factors for polarization, for sure. Yeah, no, at the same time, it maybe the internet and digital technology is a, a one tool that's serving to reinforce our neoliberal oriented worldview. So, I mean, while digital technology has the capacity to be uh, so influential in, in a positive way, it, it it could solve a lot of our problems. It's also creating this huge contradiction where it, it's also causing the problems as well. Exactly. This is kind of the big contradiction. You know, the, the question that I asked was, how is digital technology aiding and destroying neoliberalism. I feel like the internet is this weird feedback loop of problems and solutions. There's so much good and so much bad that the internet brings to us. I I have this quote um, from Adam Curtis that I want to play for you guys. He's an English documentary filmmaker. Um, He has a film called Hypernormalization that was released in 2016. Um, where he theorizes that economic elites and large corporations would prefer and have been pushing for a world without politics, where democracy doesn't interfere with making profits. Basically, no one to represent the people and no one to hold companies accountable means that there's no limit to how much money you, you can accumulate. Does that sound reasonable to you guys? Yeah. Yes, sir. So here's a quote, not from the film, but from an interview with him. Engineering systems seek stability. That's the whole idea. If you're an engineer, you build a bridge. You don't want it to change. You don't want it to fall down. You want it to hold together so all the stresses and strains balance each other out. The same as skyscrapers. You, that's, that's how engineering works. And the same is true of the internet. What it's seeking all the time is to find out what you're like, find out how, who is like you, and then find out what they want and then give you what they like so that everyone is happy. And it begins to segment you into all these little groups that are like you and then feed you the same stuff and that's because it's an engineering system and it really likes doing it and it does it beautifully what it can't do if you have a system that is constantly trying to manage the world by reading data from your behavior in the past what it can't imagine is a kind of future that's never existed before because it's always reinforcing you from what it knows you are I mean, as I quote someone in the film saying, it's actually a cartoon model of you because all these systems online simplify you and then they feed you more of that. But the main thing is it cannot imagine another future because it always has to look into the past. And if you're trying to change the world, of course you look back into the past and try and learn from it. But what you also have to do is make a leap of faith into something new. And that's what the internet, I think, as a 
beautiful information processing and distributing system never does. And to do it, we're going to have to transcend it somehow. Use it, but transcend it. I think that that's a really interesting concept that Curtis is talking about because so often we paint digital technology and like the internet as the future, but he's absolutely right. How can it how can it represent the future when it's when it's relying on the past, right? It, well, it needs foundations to build upon. I mean, we're always about forward progress and that has to come from somewhere. That's what solutionism is all about. Right. But I, I mean, if we want to imagine a better future, we have to tear ourselves away from these preconceived notions that we're essentially born into, right? Everything that the internet is operating on, we're essentially saying it's based on neoliberal capitalism and those ideas of individualism and and these notions of like just very simplistic market logics that don't take into account who we are, how we interact with each other in in a community, right? If we want the future to be oriented around something other than economics, it has to come from something that we don't yet understand as as a collective society. So how how can the internet be our vehicle to the future when what we're living through right now is something that we don't appreciate, right? So why does any of this matter? Why have we spent all this time this semester making a big list of complaints about neoliberalism and analyzing it? And really, it's it's because this is a big deal. Neoliberalism does not give you more freedom the way that it's it's marketed. It really undermines the ability for people to collectivize and hold institutions accountable. It methodically tore people apart so that power could be held by a few people. I mean, it, it makes me laugh when people bash on these proposed more socialist policies in the U.S. and they're like, ah, communism, when in reality, we're living so much closer to fascism than we are to socialism or communism. It's ridiculous that we we keep saying that, you know, it, it's too expensive to fix it. It doesn't fit such and such an agenda to fix it. We're going to destroy the world if we continue on with that line of thinking. Right. And and if we keep waiting until those who are in power face irreparable damage from climate change, like it's going to be too late for the rest of us. We can't keep ignoring our responsibilities because it doesn't align with our profit incentives. Change has to come from the bottom up. We we can't. Uh, the, these hierarchical systems that we have in place right now, these vertically oriented systems where power flows from the top and and it trickles down to the bottom, these aren't sustainable. The change has to come from us, the people. We have to get together. We have to make a plan. We have to make it happen. But what is the thing that's holding us back from doing that? Neoliberalism, the, the entire way that this system is structured, it's directly contradicting any effort that might arise to overturn the system. That's why neoliberalism is so genius. is because it's designed to maintain these power structures no matter what you do. We, we, we have to fundamentally restructure society in a way that will allow us to mobilize, to make these changes, and, and to change these power structures. And, and that's a really difficult thing to do, and that's why it hasn't happened yet, because, you know, neoliberalism is fighting against this. You know, when neoliberalism, I mean, not it directly, but the ideals of it tell you that you have been responsible for your well-being your entire life, it's really easy to dismiss the idea that there are structural barriers in place that you do not have to overcome. It's easy to dismiss the idea of having white privilege. It's easy to dismiss people who don't have your same interests or don't look like you. It's easy to dismiss people who you think haven't been working as hard as you. And with all of this dismissing that's happening, with all of these things dividing us into groups of people or, or, or into individuals, that's preventing us from coming together again, from mobilizing and from making the change that we want to see in the world. And that's why neoliberalism and its entire set of ideas is so detrimental to society, to the environment, to governance, and, and to the community. 
I think a lot of beliefs that people hold come back to one thing, whether people are inherently good or evil, like like the whole like self-motivated versus like selfless kind of thing. So this, this is the, my, my big brain moment that I had the other night. I wonder if like when we're alone, when we're humans, when we're individuals, like like that, that person is like an animal and it's, you know, survival of the fittest applies and you're acting in your own self, self-interest. But it's when we come together and we form societies and families and friendships and relationships, we're given the capacity to care about something larger than ourselves. I want to give you guys this quote from Adam Curtis again. It's a continuation of what he was talking about earlier with engineering systems and the internet. We don't have a picture of the future. We have a system we are dissatisfied with. We know is somewhat odd. We know is cracking in ways and is sometimes quite fake, especially with our politicians. But we have no other picture of the future. That's the problem. And the engineering system of the internet does not supply it. It's beautiful in other ways and it's great at organising people. But we need a picture of the future somehow. We need a picture of the future. What do you guys think about that? Absolutely. I feel like... Curtis is heading in the right direction. We as a society, we don't have a vision of where we want to go. We are so wrapped up in the here and the now and the profits and the markets and the me, 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 that there's just no time to think about, you know, what comes next. There's Mm -hmm. no time to think about the end of capitalism, which is coming really, really soon Mm -hmm. when you think about it, right? The capitalism was never meant to be the end the the end all be all of societal structures that we were designed to move on at some point right right so there's just no structural allowance for that to happen because we are so caught up right now with the problems that capitalism continues to generate for us so i think that's why these kinds of conversations are so important that's why communities and mobilizing and engaging in this sort of discourse is so important. It's so that we can craft a picture of the future. 